John Wesley Harden killed his first man at the age of 15. And for the next decade, he continued to kill. The exact number of victims is unknown, but it's estimated that somewhere between 20 to 40 men fell before Harden's guns, making him one of the deadliest shootists of the Old West. Then at the age of 25, Harden went to prison. After numerous attempts at escape and several lashings, he finally settled down and became a model inmate. And upon his release, Harden truly seemed to be a changed man. Hell, believe it or not, he would even receive a license to practice law and began working as an attorney. But how long would this last? Would Harden continue to walk the straight and narrow in the rowdy border town of El Paso? Or would he return to his old vices? And what about those rumors of his, well, let's just say indiscretions, while behind bars? My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza! Almost immediately upon arriving at the Huntsville State Penitentiary, John Wesley Harden began planning his escape. As luck would have it, he was assigned to work in the Wheelwright shop, just a mere 75 yards from the prison armory. He and a few other inmates would have to tunnel their way across, but once inside, they'd gain access to the firearms and, if need be, blast their way out. And it damn near worked. Within just a month and a half, the tunnel was almost complete, but unfortunately for Harden, another inmate squealed, so instead of gaining his freedom, he just got several days in solitaire. Not long thereafter, Wes would somehow get his hands on duplicate keys to nearly every lock in the prison, including the main gate. Your guess is as good as mine as to how this happened, but I think it's safe to say that Harden was nothing if not determined. What in the cards, though? He got snitched on again, just like before, and this time, in addition to a good long stay in solitaire, Wes also received 39 lashes. Quote, My sides and back were beaten into a jelly, and still quivering and bleeding, they made me walk in the snow across to another building, where they placed me in a dark cell and threatened to starve me to death if I did not reveal the plot. I told them I would tell them nothing, that I meant to escape and would kill them in a minute if they stood in my way. They left me there for three days without anything to eat or drink, and on the fourth day I was carried to another cell in a high fever and unable to walk. I stayed there for 30 days. End quote. Now despite such a harsh treatment, John Wesley remained undeterred. As soon as he got to feeling better, he bribed a guard and attempted yet another escape, but once again, he got called and once more received the whip. Now an official prison certificate of conduct during this period oddly enough, does not mention any of these misadventures. It does, however, show that Hardin was charged with conspiracy to incite impudence, mutinous conduct, throwing food on the floor, laziness, gambling, and trying to incite other prisoners to impudence. A lot of impudence going down in Huntsville's tape pen back in the 1870s, apparently. According to Hardin, there was a final attempt at busting out, but I guess he had already learned the hard way about trusting his fellow inmates and called it quits before the plan came to fruition. Sure enough, someone tattled and all his former conspirators got the whip. After this, Hardin seemed to straighten up. Hell, truth be told, over the next few years, Wes would go on to become a model prisoner. He joined the debate team, began teaching Sunday school, I shit you not, and even devoted himself to studying the law. Sadly, things back home weren't going quite as well. His wife and kids were living with his widowed mama, but they were having a hard time getting along, so Wes had to play mediator from behind bars. I can't imagine that was an easy task. 
Then in the summer of 1885, Hardin's mother passed away, at which point Jane and the children moved in with the Dunderstadt family, Fred Dunderstadt having been one of Hardin's old cowboy buddies. Jane helped out around the house for room and board, and what scant income she was bringing in was either through selling ladies' apparel or just working various odd jobs. To John Wesley Hardin's credit, and despite a few periods of silence here and there, he would write to his family often, or as often as the officials allowed. Jane, however, seems to have rarely returned the favor. I got to imagine that she wasn't very happy with the whole prison situation. And as it turns out, there may have been additional reasons for Jane's discontent. Now, this next part is a little controversial, but I'm just going to lay it out there and let you make of it what you will. After a few years behind bars, West went radio silent and stopped sending letters altogether. He apologized for this in June of 1881 by writing to Jane that his negligence was not, quote, on account of any unfaithfulness on my part, and that he wished to spare her, quote, disgraceful correspondence. This strange language was followed up by Hardin saying that he hoped she needed no further explanation on the matter. For additional insight, I'll refer you to historian Leon Metz, and his book, John Wesley Hardin, Dark Angel of Texas. In Chapter 21, State Prison, Mr. Metz writes the following, quote, Hardin probably was referring to a series of homosexual acts involving him in prison. The behavior humiliated and disgraced him, yet though disgusted, he participated. He could not talk about it, could not defend it, and therefore could not write about it. At least a year went by without any letters to Jane. She probably learned of this practice through other sources, letters, comments by released prisoners, and rumors. Even when she questioned him, he responded reluctantly. His letter revealing self-hate, a revulsion about discussing the subject, whatever it was. End quote. Now, I did look into this further and was able to obtain a copy of said letter written from Hardin to his wife Jane on August 14, 1881. It was very hard to read, handwriting-wise, there were a few words I was unable to make out, but I think I got the gist of things. Just like Metz stated, Hardin does tell Jane that it wasn't any unfaithfulness on his part that caused him to stop writing. As for his reasons, West claims that he was giving her, Jane, a chance to find another lover, along with sparing her of the disgraceful correspondence, something that Hardin says he cannot mention now. And the final reason for his absence was, quote, to keep certain parties whom I knew would be glad to hear of my misfortune from knowing too much, end quote. And this is followed up by him writing, I hope it needs no further explanation. The rest of the letter is pretty much hard and just telling Jane to write back to him at once. He tells her this multiple times and for her to tell the kids that he loves them. There is one additional section where Hardin again seems to allude to some type of an affair by writing without context, quote, Jane, don't doubt my fidelity in deserting you at the time. And he ends the letter by asking Jane if she forgives him. Okay, so, I don't know about you, but I'm not really convinced that this is Hardin admitting to some sort of illicit sexual affair in prison versus him just not writing. His unfaithfulness and fidelity, or lack thereof, could just be a reference to his lack of sending letters over the past year. I mean, fidelity, by definition, isn't just refraining from adultery, but also just being loyal in general. That said, his remark about disgraceful correspondence does somewhat raise an eyebrow, right? 
Then again, it very well could be that Hardin was receiving letters from female admirers. And maybe Jane didn't much appreciate that. So I don't know. The wording is a little strange, but we're missing a whole hell of a lot of context. And without additional information, I'm not sure that this is the smoking gun that Leon Metz seems to think it is. And besides, let's be honest. Hardin certainly wouldn't have been the only inmate there at Huntsville Prison, involved in a little extramarital hanky-panky, right? It may be that West swung both ways, I don't know. I'm just not convinced there's anywhere near enough evidence to state as much. Now, speaking of Jane, sadly, she would pass away in November of 1892, at just 35 years of age. The children, who were at that time all in their teens, remained living on the Dunderstadt Ranch. As for Hardin, well, his luck would soon take a turn for the better. Rather than serving his entire 25-year sentence, he'd do just shy of 16 years before receiving a pardon. Still not really sure how West managed to pull that one off, but evidently there were a ton of people signing petitions for his release. That, coupled with his good conduct and a new somewhat sympathetic Texas governor, seemed to do the trick. So it were on the 17th of February, 1894, that John Wesley Hardin walked out of prison a free man. Hell, his lawyer even saw to it that past indictments were squashed as well. Hardin was not only free, but for the first time in over two decades, he wasn't even a wanted man. Now, the first thing West did was to fetch his children from the Dunderstadt Ranch and move them back to Gonzales. As happy as I'm sure he was to finally be reunited with the kiddos, this feeling does not appear to be mutual. His daughter Molly was especially upset, as she was to be married soon, but this move to Gonzales would postpone the ceremony. As for the other two, you gotta think. They didn't even know their father. Not really. Hell, John Jr. was just two, and young Jane barely a month old when Hardin was arrested back in Florida. For what it's worth, though, West did initially seem determined to walk that straight and narrow. By July, he received a license to practice law in Texas, and by all accounts, hit the ground running. A Spanish paper out of Gonzales even wrote up a nice editorial on Hardin and his efforts on behalf of the local Mexican-American community. Then again, he also represented the noted killer, Deacon Jim Miller. Turns out Wes and Miller were kind of sort of related. Jim was married to Manning Clements' daughter, Sarah, and the Clements, if you'll recall, were cousins to John Wesley Hardin. I will be doing an extensive look into the life of Jim Miller very soon. But just in case you're not familiar, he was basically the Old West version of a hitman. And over time, he would rack up a body count comparable to that of Hardin's. Despite this fondness for killing, Miller had somehow landed himself a job as a deputy over in Pecos County. Be that as it may, by the spring of 1894, he got into a gunfight with his former boss, Sheriff Bud Frazier. Both men survived, and Miller, via attorney of law John Wesley Hardin, would ironically file attempted murder charges against the good sheriff. The trial was held in El Paso and, despite Hardin's best efforts, resulted in a hung jury. No word on whether or not Jim or Wes had any contact afterwards, but it wasn't but a year later when Miller finally got even and blew Frazier's head clean off with a shotgun. But that's another story for another day. Now, shortly before that trial in El Paso, a 41-year-old John Wesley Hardin was wed in holy matrimony to 15-year-old Callie Lewis. Fifteen. This may come as a shocker, but it would turn out to be an extremely short-lived marriage. Contrary to popular belief, Hardin did not win Callie in a poker game. 
Matter of fact, both of the young lady's parents wholeheartedly supported the relationship, even after it was over. And in at least one letter that I read written by Callie to Wes, she did seem very smitten with the middle-aged killer. Now, nobody truly knows what happened. It caused the marriage to sour, but come on. She was 15 and he was 41. What the hell do you expect? And no, despite what you may have heard or read, this was not a common practice, even in those days. Matter of fact, just to put it into perspective, back in 1890, the median age of marriage for women in the United States was 22 years of age. Did this sort of thing happen more in those days than it does now? Yes, absolutely. But it still wasn't the norm. Even at the wedding, one of Hardin's younger brothers would make a wisecrack about Wes marrying a child. Now, Callie is described by various sources as wild and independent, rebellious, known for speaking her mind and being unresponsive to the influence of her parents. So that may have also led to a quick breakup, but like I said, the girl was just 15 years old. And by the way, in the context of the late 19th century, what exactly did it mean for a woman, or a girl in Callie's case, to be considered wild and rebellious? She didn't do the dishes immediately. Maybe she expressed crazy ideas about women someday being able to vote, or, oh, I don't know, maybe being able to open up her own bank account. Crazy shit like that. Either way, the marriage was over in just a week. Hardin returned Callie to her mom and dad and went on about his business representing Miller over in El Paso. Now, evidently, Wes found El Paso to his liking as he decided to stick around even after the Miller trial was over. Began advertising his legal services and even rented out office space on the second floor of the Wells Fargo building. A building that, if I'm not mistaken, was destroyed by fire just a few years ago. And to be fair, it's not difficult to understand why El Paso would have seemed appealing to a guy like Wes Harden. Whereas most of the country had done been settled by 1895... El Paso still very much resembled that wild and lawless West the Harden had grown up in. There was definitely no shortage of saloons, whorehouses, and gambling joints, and even in the 1890s, shootouts were not unheard of. Probably not the best place for an old gunslinger trying to go straight, though. Kind of like trying to quit a cocaine habit by moving down to Miami. Despite a myriad of temptations, Harden did stick to practicing the law, at least initially, and it wasn't long before his services were retained by former prostitute Beulah Morose, whose husband, Martin, had gotten himself into quite the pickle. Story goes that Mr. Morose sold his ranch in the spring of 1895 and arrived in El Paso with a fat stack of cash. Unfortunately, Martin and his running buddy, Vic Queen, were also suspected of rustling livestock. Whether they were guilty or not, I do not know. The verdict still seems to be out on that one. What I do know is that the pair ultimately chose not to take their chances in Texas and instead fled across the border to Juarez. Ah, but the safety of Mexico wouldn't last long. Authorities in El Paso were keeping a close eye on Beulah, and when she crossed over into Juarez to visit Martin, they pounced. Mr. Moroz was tossed in jail, and the Mexican police confiscated $1,800 off of Beulah, damn near 70000 in today's money. That's where John Wesley Harden, attorney of law, came into play. He was to not only represent Martin Moroz, but to also get that money back from the Federales. And Harden was successful on both fronts. Beulah got her, or should I say her husband's, cash back, bringing her estimated total to somewhere between two dollars to $3,000, and Martin was released from behind bars. Still couldn't go back into Texas, though. If Moroz stepped just one foot across that border, he'd be arrested, and he knew it. 
However, when U.S. authorities attempted to have Martin extradited, the Mexicans refused, partly due to Hardin greasing the right palms over in Juarez with Beulah's money. What's more, he also saw to it that Martin was granted Mexican citizenship. So all in all, not a bad showing by Wes, right? The man may have been about half psychotic, but he weren't no dummy when it came to practicing law. Of course, that don't mean the Hardin's intentions were as pure as the driven snow. Far from it. Truth is, Wes was fully aware the Moreau's was stuck in Mexico. Beulah had all the money and, well, let's just say, she quickly became much more than just a client. Not only did she and Hardin begin sharing a bed, but Wes even convinced Beulah to cut off all contact with Martin. As soon as Moreau's found out, he had a few of his buddies corner Wes one evening over in Juarez. I assume he was there on business, likely unarmed, and these old boys had him surrounded and outnumbered. According to the April 24, 1895 edition of the El Paso Times, they tried to bulldoze Hardin and, quote, grew quite saucy in their talk when they saw he did not want to have a row. Mr. Hardin is a spirited man and quick-tempered. Consequently, this little Sabbath day collision did not sit well on his good-natured stomach, end quote. You're damn right it didn't sit well. Matter of fact, Hardin would return the following night, this time packing heat and backup in the form of El Paso Chief of Police Jeff Milton and Deputy U.S. Marshal George Scarborough. The trio made their way to a Juarez cantina and located them same guys who cornered Hardin the previous day, along with a few others. An argument broke out and Wes open palm slapped one of the men across his saucy little face while at the same time shoving the business end of a revolver in his belly. Luckily, Jeff Milton was able to wrench the gun away from Hardin, but that didn't stop him from walking over and bitch-slapping yet another one of the men. Thus ending the argument as all pretensions of sauciness were thoroughly vanquished. Nothing like a good open palm slap to the face to curb a saucy tongue, right? I've been saying that for years. Be that as it may, Hardin soon began to spiral downward at an alarming rate. He was spending more and more time gambling, and by the spring of 1895... Just 14 months after his release from prison, he stopped practicing law altogether. He also grew increasingly aggressive. Case in point, the night of May 1st, 1895. After losing heavily at poker at the Acme Saloon, Wes simply stood up, scooped all the money off the table as if it were his, and walked out like nothing happened. Next day, this action was repeated in a different establishment after a dealer took to making snide comments. Now you may be wondering, Josh... What's the difference between snide and saucy? And to that I say, does it really matter when you're dealing with a guy like John Wesley Harden? Just keep your damn mouth shut. In an attempt to justify his actions, Harden told a local paper, quote, I was grossly insulted by the dealer in a hoorah manner. Hence I told him he could not win my money and hoorah me too. I admire pluck, push, and virtue wherever found, yet I contempt and despise a coward and an assassin of character. End quote. And hell yeah. Now, despite this bravado, it did become clear to many that Wes was slipping. Historian Leon Metz speculates that Hardin's skills, nerve, and confidence had all degenerated, and that the old dog's bark was so loud because he had lost so many teeth. And there may be some truth to that, but then again, even a toothless dog could still be dangerous, as evidenced by Hardin possibly orchestrating the murder of Martin Moroz. Remember, Moroz was still stuck in Mexico, but his wife and money were in Texas, under the dutiful watch of one John Wesley Hardin. In a desperate attempt to reclaim these assets, Martin began discussing options with Deputy U.S. Marshal George Scarborough. 
The pair agreed that George would escort Morose across the border under the cover of dark. Just long enough for him to see Beulah in person, you know, try to maybe talk some sense into her, or at very least get some of his money back. Sadly for Martin, things would not go quite as planned. While Scarborough did indeed walk Morose across that bridge, he wasn't alone. Turns out Jeff Milton and a Texas Ranger by the name of Frank McMahon were lurking on the other side, and as soon as Martin was firmly on Texas soil, they shot him dead. Now to this day, it's unclear as to their exact motivation, but according to the lawmen, Morose went for his gun, leaving them no choice but to open fire. And that may be the case, but you also got to think who stood to gain the most. You know, with Martin out of the picture and no longer posing a threat, Hardin would have unfettered access to both Beulah and her money. As it turns out, this theory ain't as far-fetched as it may seem. Now, we will circle back to Wes's probable involvement in Martin's death here in just a moment. But for now, I think it's important to continue examining Hardin's frame of mind during this period. Despite vows to abstain from liquor, return to practice in law, and even write a book of his life's adventures, Wes began gambling and drinking more than ever. His only income seemed to be whatever he could earn from the poker table or wrangle from Beulah, and his violent outbursts were becoming more and more frequent. According to his landlady, quote, I did not hesitate to talk saucy to him when he got drunk and damaged my furniture, and yet I feared him. I would feel my very bones chill when he looked at me with his darting little serpentine eyes. He would bring his whiskey to his room by the gallon, and I could hear him at all hours of the day and night stirring his toddy. But I never saw him staggering drunk. I could only tell he was drunk by the extreme politeness and the peculiar snake-like glitter of his eyes. He declared that he had no confidence in human nature, that the human heart was rotten, and that everything living was deceitful. He made me shudder when he said, I would not trust my own mother, but would watch her just like I watch everyone else. Hardin would walk the halls for hours at night with a pistol in his hand. I think he was crazy with fear, for no matter who knocked at his door, he would spring behind a table where a pistol was lying before he ever said, come in, end quote. Now, I won't bore you with her entire account, but the landlady does mention the book the Hardin was writing, that he would talk to her frequently about it, and that he would still practice with his guns on a daily basis. Quote, I have seen him unload his guns, put them in his pocket, walk across the room, and then suddenly spring to one side face around, and quick as a flash, he would have a gun in each hand clicking so fast that the click sounded like a rattle machine. End of quote. So there you go. Maybe that old dog hadn't lost all of his teeth after all. And like I just said, to Hardin's credit, and despite his drunken state, he did begin writing that book, an autobiography of his life, with the help of the freshly widowed Beulah Morose. It appears that she did most, if not all, of the writing as he dictated. Wes even took her on as a full partner in his, quote, manuscript and business matters. Be that as it may, their relationship wasn't all rainbows and puppy dogs. In August 1895, while Hardin was off gambling in New Mexico, Beulah got drunk and disorderly and ended up in jail for carrying a brace of pistols. Her arresting officer was a young man by the name of John Selman Jr. Beulah was fined $50 and, when she appeared in court, apologized for her actions. More on this in a bit, but I do feel like Hardin's behavior on that trip to New Mexico also warrants a brief mention. After losing big in a card game, Wes tried pulling that same stunt as he did back in El Paso, just scooping up the money and walking out. 
Only this time it didn't go over so well, and one of his fellow gamblers pulled a gun and forced the legendary killer to return his ill-gotten booty. And things didn't get much better when he got back home, as evidenced by his encounter with George Scarborough just a couple weeks later. Apparently Wes had gotten drunker in hell and told a newspaperman that he wasn't very happy with Deputy Scarborough and that he would soon have something to say about the killing of Martin Moroz. Oh my, whatever could that mean? Guess George didn't much appreciate such loose talk, so he paid Wes a visit and forced him to apologize. So that's twice in less than a month that Harden backed down. Not a habit he was accustomed to and certainly not something anyone could have foreseen him doing as a younger man. Then again, as we've already touched on, Harden wasn't exactly no spring chicken. Sure, he was only 42 years old, but you gotta assume that spending years in prison and sustaining multiple gunshot wounds as a way of aging a man. Toss in an almost certain undiagnosed mental illness, along with alcohol abuse, and yeah, I highly doubt Harden was as sharp or as fast as he had been two decades prior. By 1895, West was operating mostly on reputation, and even that was beginning to fade. Something that was made abundantly clear with his next run-in with George Scarborough. Harden had once again gotten drunk and began mouthing off about George. This time he even went so far as to implicate the lawman in a murder, saying that he, Harden, had personally hired Scarborough, along with Jeff Milton, to assassinate Martin Moroz. As soon as Scarborough found out, he located Wes, grabbed him by the ear, and then forcibly marched him down to the offices of the El Paso Times for a public printed apology. I shit you not. The article read, quote, Yesterday morning, John Wesley Harden, accompanied by United States Marshal Scarborough, called at the Times office where Mr. Harden wrote the following card for publication. To the public, I have been informed that on the night of the 6th, while under the influence of liquor, I made a talk against George Scarborough, stating that I had hired Scarborough to kill Moroz. I do not recollect making any such statement, and if I did, the statement was absolutely false, and it was superinduced by drink and frenzy, end quote. As for Beulah, she had also had enough by this point, especially after she and Wes got into a huge argument and Harden forced her to write her own damn suicide note. Yikes. As you can imagine, Beulah took the next train out of town. She would return in a matter of days, as is often the case with such dysfunctional relationships, but within a week, she was gone again. So Harden continued to drink, and his troubles continued to mount. Now, earlier I mentioned how Beulah was arrested by Constable John Selman Jr. back on August 1st. Word had it that once Harden returned from New Mexico and learned about what happened, he gave the young man a thorough dressing down, possibly even to the point of threatening his life. Well, Junior's father, John Selman Sr., was also a constable there in El Paso, and by all accounts, far meaner than John Wesley Harden. I have an entire episode devoted to Selman Sr., linked down below in the description if you'd like to learn more, but he was truly just a very nasty dude. His gang, known as Selman Scouts, went on a murder and raping rampage back in Lincoln County years prior, before getting run out by the militia. How the hell he ever convinced anyone to pin a badge on him is beyond me. Now, Selman Sr. and Harden had been friendly in the past, but on the evening of August 19th, they began quarreling, possibly due to Harden's treatment of his son, Selman Jr. Per Leon Metz, quote, Constable John Selman accosted Harden in the streets that afternoon, snorting that he understood Harden had threatened John Selman Jr. 
Hardin allegedly called young John a cowardly son of a bitch who had arrested his woman, Beulah. When Selman defended his son and offered to shoot it out, Hardin claimed to be unarmed. Hardin said, I'll go get a gun and when I meet you, I'll meet you smoking and make you shit like a wolf all around the block. End quote. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Telling someone that you'll make them shit like a wolf around the block is hands down undefeated when it comes to Old West threats. Okay? Even better than Buckshot Roberts calling the Lincoln County regulators a bunch of Marianne's before taking them on a dozen to one. Now, Hardin and Selman would go their separate ways, but they were destined for another, much more fatal encounter later that night at the Acme Saloon. As usual, Wes was gambling, rolling dice at the bar around 10 p.m. when Selman Sr. came up from behind and put a 45 caliber round straight into the back of his skull. I guess not looking to take any chances, Selman continued firing, at least three more of his bullets striking an already dead Hardin as he crumpled to the floor. Full disclosure, not everyone agrees that Hardin was shot from behind. The photographer who snapped the famous post-mortem picture of Hardin, J.C. Berg, thought otherwise. I guess after spending over three decades on the border, Mr. Berg considered himself somewhat of an expert on gunshot wounds. And according to him, it appeared as if Wes had been shot in the face. This theory is backed up by Hardin's killer, John Selman Sr., who would later testify that he and Wes were facing each other and making eye contact before he pulled the trigger. To further confuse matters, at least one witness stated that Selman barreled into the saloon, hollering up a storm before he opened up fire. If this is true, you would think that Hardin would have at least turned around to see what all the commotion was about. And then there are those who think Wes possibly spied Selman in the mirror over the bar and that he was going for his gun and attempted to spin around when Selman killed him. For what it's worth, a total of three doctors would examine Hardin's body shortly after his death, and they all agreed that the bullet entered into the base of his skull and exited out the upper corner of his left eye. This, too, was backed up by several witnesses there at the Acme Saloon. Either way, John Wesley Hardin had turned his last card. Once Beulah heard the news, she returned to El Paso and, surprisingly, paid for Wes's funeral. She also tried to claim his unfinished manuscript, but the courts ultimately ruled against her and gave the rights to Hardin's children. A year later, The Life of John Wesley Hardin was published, and it is still available even to this day. You can pick up a copy on Amazon or even read it for free online like I did. Now, how closely the finished product followed the manuscript, what, if anything, was omitted is unknown as, unfortunately, the publishers threw away the original. Also remaining unknown is Selman Sr.'s true motivation for killing Hardin. It may have been as simple as Wes threatening his son, or it could go a bit deeper. Once again, according to Leon Metz and Dark Angel, quote, El Paso residents widely speculated that there was more behind the Moreau's killing than just three officers shooting one outlaw. They suspected Hardin had paid the policemen for that night's work a suspicion confirmed in some circles when Hardin signed a newspaper statement apologizing for saying that he had hired Scarborough. He also said the same regarding Milton. The story is that Hardin had not just hired Scarborough, Milton, and McMahon to murder Moroz, but that he had also retained Selman. In the darkness and confusion of that night along the Rio Grande near the trestle, Selman might have slipped away before the other lawmen arrived. Perhaps he had not even reached the bridge in time to participate. End quote. And lest you think this is just more speculation on the part of Metz, this theory does jive with the recollections of longtime El Paso businessman George Look. 
In his own manuscript years later, Look would state that Selman had complained to him, saying that although West paid Scarborough for the Moreau's murder, he had failed to square up with everybody else. According to George Look, Selman was contemplating killing Hardin for this lack of payment. Quote, because he, Hardin, would not give Selman his cut of the Moreau's money. End quote. And then there's some that think Selman was simply jealous of Hardin's reputation. You know, two baddest boys on the block, right? Sooner or later, they're going to try to find out who's toughest. So who knows? Maybe Selman killed Hardin for threatening his son. Maybe it was due to a lack of payment for the Moreau's murder. Possibly even as a way to silence Wes for making further drunken confessions. Jealousy. Or maybe it was just a combination of all the above. As for John Selman, he wouldn't have long to live either. On April 1st, 1896, less than a year after Hardin's death, Selman Jr. was arrested in Mexico after being caught in a compromising situation with an underage girl. A few days later, Sr. got drunker than a skunk and began pressuring Deputy Scarborough to help get his son released out of jail over in Juarez. This somehow turned into an argument. One thing led to another, and both men went for their guns. Scarborough was a little bit faster and, I assume, more sober, and succeeded in putting four rounds into Selman's body. Interestingly enough, exactly four years later, minus one day, Scarborough would himself be killed while chasing stock thieves over in New Mexico. The fate of Beulah Moreau's isn't quite as clear, though. After helping to bury Wes and making an unsuccessful bid for his manuscript, she simply disappeared into history. Luckily, the same can't be said for Hardin's child bride, Callie. After officially becoming a widow following Hardin's death, the young lady remarried to someone a little closer to her own age, a doctor, and ended up living a very long life, passing away in 1963 at the age of 84. I find it fascinating that the former wife of an Old West gunfighter was still alive when Elvis and the Beatles were blowing up the radio dial. As for Hardin's children, they would remain close for the rest of their lives never living more than 35 miles apart from one another. Although his youngest daughter, Jenny, would marry, she and her husband never had any kids of their own, and Jenny died of a stroke in 1931. Her brother, John Jr., would die just 12 days later of a heart attack at the age of 56. He and his wife had three children, the first of whom they named John Wesley Harden III. Finally, Wes's oldest, Mary Harden, often referred to as Molly, would have a total of 12 kids of her own none of whom were named after her famous father, and she passed away in the town of Nixon in 1938 at 65 years of age. Interesting guy, John Wesley Harden. I guess you could say he was an outlaw. I mean, hell, the man did 15 years in prison and spent the majority of his life dodging the law. But he didn't really partake in any traditional outlaw activities. Wes, much like Billy the Kid, never robbed a train or held up a bank or stagecoaches or anything like that. Although he did traffic in stolen livestock on occasion, his biggest crime was killing. And when it came to killing, John Wesley Hardin truly was the best at what he did. Still, there are many to this day who steadfastly believe that Hardin was a victim of circumstance and that his killings were just the direct result of him standing up for his rights. Rights that were being trampled upon by overreaching government authority. And this may offend a few people, but I tend to disagree. For instance, Hardin claimed that he ran after killing Mage back in 1868 because the killing of a black man in Reconstruction, Texas would mean, quote, sudden death at the hands of a court backed by northern bayonets, end quote. Now, granted, he was just 15 years old, so I can understand the fear, 
But in all reality, had West gone to trial, the jury would have been comprised of his fellow white Texas neighbors, not carpetbaggers. And in 1868, such a jury would have almost certainly have let Hardin off the hook for the killing of a former slave. It's my opinion, for what it's worth, that there's quite a bit of misconception when it comes to Reconstruction Air, Texas. It's widely believed that Union troops were posted up on every corner just victimizing Texans left and right, almost like an Old West version of Red Dawn. And that guys like John Wesley Hardin or Cullen Baker and the like were more freedom fighters than outlaws. In all actuality, nothing could be further from the truth. According to the late historian Randolph B. Campbell, who, by the way, was also the region's professor of history at the University of North Texas, the popular narrative of Northerners arriving in Texas after the Civil War to dominate state government is largely untrue. More than half of the high-ranking officials in Texas during Reconstruction were natives of the South, and almost all of them were Texas citizens before the war between the states. And although there were initially some 50,000 U.S. troops assigned to Texas during Reconstruction, this number dwindled significantly. Hell, after just one year, only 3,000 soldiers remained, and they were mostly posted on the frontier. Yes, there was a ton of violent crime in post-Civil War Texas, but the vast majority of it, by a landslide, was being committed by white Texans, former Confederates. And the majority of their victims were former slaves. Was Reconstruction a time of great upheaval, both socially and economically? Yes, absolutely. But a lot of this unrest was the direct result of slavery being abolished and the unfortunate reaction to it, and not evil carpetbaggers from the North just victimizing innocent Texans like John Wesley Hardin. It weren't oppression that caused John Wesley Hardin to kill. Matter of fact, even after doing this series, I'm not aware of a single instance where Hardin was ever persecuted unfairly by those in power. If anything, the man was treated with kid gloves. Not only was he never strung up by a lynch mob, you know, he was repeatedly protected by local law and Texas Rangers. And then once he was finally sent to prison, he'd end up receiving a pardon from the damn governor of Texas. Doesn't really sound all that oppressed to me. I think that Hardin killed because, one, he was damn good at it. And two, he continuously placed himself in situations that warranted deadly force, whether they be feuds or drunken confrontations or simply gambling disputes. While others might have balked at drawing their guns or escalating things further than a mere fist fight, Hardin didn't. What begins as a simple barroom disagreement can turn deadly at the drop of a hat with a guy like Wes. Also, I'm no psychologist, but... John Wesley Hardin had to have been suffering from some type of undiagnosed mental condition, right? I don't know if it was a form of psychopathy, maybe antisocial personality disorder, I don't know. But as the old-timers like to say, that boy just wasn't right in the head. But that's just my opinion. What do you think? Was John Wesley Hardin a good son of the South, a freedom fighter who stood up for himself, or just a crazed killer whose luck ran out in the spring 1895? Or somewhere in the middle. Hit me up and let me know what you think. Josh at WildWestExtra.com Or if you're watching this on YouTube, leave a comment down below. I am genuinely interested in your take. And I guess that's about all I've got on John Wesley Harden. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to email me. Once again, that's Josh at WildWestExtra.com Till next week, adios. Adios.